Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop State Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. The Ant Hill. Uh, today we have a really cool episode set up for you. i got a guy named Tom Spargo I'm going to be bringing on the line in just a bit. Tom is the inventor of a really cool thing called a rain saucer. It's a rain harvesting technology, which honestly, when I first heard it through my wife who uh, took care of setting up this interview, I went, I don't know. Uh, but after looking at it and then after talking to him, I'm really blown away with how many cool things these will allow you to do. So he's going to talk to us not just about his product, but rain harvesting in general uh, and the importance of making water part of your homestead plans, your agricultural plans, your survival planning uh, and how rainwater can help, uh, you know, in that aspect of things. Before I do, though, I've got the housekeeping, but I really want you to make sure you stay tuned through the housekeeping today. I've got something very, very important where I'm going to ask you for help today. Uh, in fact, t Tom's interview, you know, was conducted yesterday. That's generally how I do these things, uh, pre pre-recorded. Um, so it went a little short, and there's always a reason for things, and I think what I have to inform you about today is going to fill that reason. Before I get to that, and then Tom, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, MERSRadio.com. That's actually M-U-R-S hyphen, you know, a little dash, then the word radio and a dot com. MERS Radio is an unlicensed radio frequency that's just not as used as things like the family radio frequency radios, like the stuff you find in the, the stores and things like that. Um, it's actually five frequencies and five sub-frequencies, so there's 25 frequencies there. And if you start using the sub-frequencies, you can get a fairly reasonable expectation of privacy because, well, they only have about a two-mile range, so the odds somebody two miles away from you had picked one of those 25 frequencies too, uh, and if they did, if they're transmitting, you would know. So I think it's really a great kind of an in-between world between like this, the cheap off-the-shelf stuff and going to the level of being a licensed ham operator. And it's more of a, you know, a, a, a compound, a homestead, a, that type of, uh, of, of coverage, something you would use at a neighborhood level or below. Uh, really cool though, because you can combine security with communications, because you can set these little motion sensors out there, and if someone or something is moving around in that area, you know, and they're not supposed to be there, come across your handheld radio, your base station will be alert sector one or alert sector two. That way you know something's going on out there, whether it's one of your animals trying to escape or somebody doesn't belong there on your back porch. Good information to have, and MERS Radio can help you with that. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. I always call them the original sponsor because they were the first ones. They were the first company to ever sponsor the Survival Podcast, and they're still doing it today. They also really helped me get the member support brigade off the ground because, of course, they have a discount buyer's club, $29 lifetime membership, big discounts on everything they sell for the rest of your life, absolutely free to member support brigade members. People go buy that thing for $29 every day, uh, and they give it away free to the MSB. That tells you that, you know, 
long duration, everybody's happy with them, support the MSB. These are guys you want to do business with. And what do they sell? Everything and anything you can think of for your prepping, from defensive tools uh, to 12-volt products to solar, some solar and wind stuff, long-term storage food, you name it. And when you're there, hey, check out their sister site, Safe Castle LLC. Uh, they build some of the best hardened shelters you'll ever find. If you have need of a hardened shelter, make sure you check with them first. Uh, next up today, remember, you can connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. Uh, remember to check out the Survival Podcast Gear Shop for cool stuff. And uh, last but not least, if you uh, if you like the show and you want to support it, you can do that by joining the Member Support Brigade, which I just talked about a little bit. It comes out to $0.20 cents an episode. That's 50 bucks a year. Uh, or you can join on a quarterly basis or a semi-annual basis. You can even do it a monthly payment of 5 bucks. And you get access to all of the benefits that include the Discount Buyers Club from Safecastle and discounts from 28 other vendors. Over $100 worth of free ebooks. You get the point. It's a good deal. All right. I, this is where I would normally bring our guest on. But um, this is today I have to spend a few minutes with you talking to you about something that's going on out there. Something that was brought to my attention last night. Um, we have seen an uptick and stupid uh, city-level, county-level ordinances being enforced in very, with very poor judgment by the enforcement officials in their cities. Um, I've gotten behind some stuff to try to rectify them. I think we got really we got a uh, we got a victory in Michigan uh, with the people that they were going to put in jail for 89 days uh, over the fact that they had a front yard garden. Uh, that was stupid. What I'm about to drop on you now is asinine to a level that is just despicable. And the citizens of this neighborhood, uh, if any of you are hearing me because this was forwarded to you, if you guys don't march on your city hall and say, fix this shit, something's wrong with every single one of you. You also should find out who the turd is that complained in this, and you shouldn't flash mob his house or something like that. But the entire neighborhood should dress nicely and be very organized and go knock on the turd's door, and every single one of you should ask him or her, why are you being a turd and oppressing a woman who is what? Dying of terminal bone cancer. Yes, this lady Jan, uh, who has been a, you know, a great person her whole life, apparently has tons of people that love and care for her, that are trying to help her out in this situation, uh, was diagnosed with bone cancer, and it's not the kind that's ever going to get any better. And she's dying, and to, to, to raise some money to help pay for things, She's running a yard sale. But the city of, Sa I think it's Salem, has uh, an ordinance that says you only have three a year. Now, she's even doing them in her backyard. She's doing them, like, on the weekends. So this is not like a 24-7 operation. She's selling away everything she owns. Anyway, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll just play for you right now. I want you to hear the actual news report on this, the one that has my blood boiling. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you we can't change laws in Salem, Oregon from all over the country. Maybe we can make some phone calls and make them realize the rest of the country is looking at them and thinks they're a bunch of ass clowns. Uh, but we can't change that law. But I am going to tell you how we can help Jan. So hold on, and here we go. This is an actual report from one of the local affiliate stations of the, the asininity of the city of Salem. A woman finding a terminal form of bone cancer is trying to raise money to help pay the bills with a few weekend garage sales. Well, the city of Salem says she's breaking the law and it's shutting down those sales. K2's Emily Sinovic joins us now. So what was the problem here? Well, nobody really had any idea. She surely didn't that there was actually a law. And Salem does have a clear law that you can only have three yard sales a year. Jan Klein has been selling her stuff in the backyard for a few weekends now, though. And Jan thought she'd be fine keeping the sale out of everyone's way tucked away in the backyard, but the city told her a sale is a sale, and she was breaking the law. 
it's a struggle. It's a struggle for me because I'm very independent and um, uh, used to uh, taking care of myself. Jan Klein has run businesses, supported herself for years. And then this summer, the diagnosis. It's a bone marrow cancer and it eats through the bones and causes holes in the bones so that just by walking I can break a bone. In one day, she lost her independence, her ability to work and earn an income that could help pay for all of those medical bills. Oh, thousands, thousands, yeah. You probably don't even want to think about it. I haven't opened the envelopes even. <laughs> I, it's too hard. I can't, you know, what, what am I going to do? You know, might as well be a million. So she decided to sell what she owned. And that sale was bringing in several hundred dollars each weekend until one neighbor complained and she got a visit from the city. He goes, I'm sorry, rules are rules. Just and like that. Just like that. That was pretty much it. Jan says she understands the city is trying to prevent nuisances in neighborhoods, but she doesn't think she's causing much trouble. We make such an effort of making it back here so that it's not goobering up the neighborhood. You know, it's not like a garage sale all laid out day after day after day. She isn't looking for special treatment, but Jan says maybe a little understanding. I just hope nobody else has to go through this kind of thing. I hope that no one else has to uh, give their life away for, for nickels and dimes and... And then be told they can't even do that. So I hope nobody else has to do this ever. So we did talk to the city of Salem. The community development department told me there is a reason for the law. In the past, some people have set up what ended up being a permanent flea market type sale on their property. But after hearing more about Jan's situation, they told me they are going to take a second look at it, see if they can explore some options, see if there's any flexibility, or if she can make any adjustments to the way her sale set up so that it does fall within the law. It's hard to see her going through the cancer, number one. But also getting rid of a lot of what she's held on to all her life. Yeah, she told me she doesn't want to part with this stuff. There are a lot of memories. She doesn't want to liquidate her life, but that's essentially what she's doing to raise some money. Have to pay the bills. Really mm -hmm. feel for it. No. All right, well, I'm just pissed off, all right? I'm just absolutely pissed off about this, and I, and I want you guys to help me out today. I want you to do something for me. Um, some of her friends have set up a page where you can donate to this lady, and I have verified that if you do this, the PayPal account, uh, it goes straight to her bank account. It goes directly to her. This is not a charitable donation that you can deduct taxes on. For God's sakes, this is, let's do something to help this lady, okay? Uh, but it's not going through a foundation or anything. It's going straight to her. Uh, 25,000 of you guys listen to my show every day. If 10% of you that listen to the show, and some of you will listen today, some will listen tomorrow, some will listen Monday next week, uh, but if 10% of you, that's 2,500 people, if 2,500 people gave five bucks, that's $7,500. Uh, that would do more for her probably than her yard sales can do uh, through the rest of the year and, and give her time to, to deal with that situation as best she can. And um, I, I want you to know I've verified this. This is, this is good to go. Uh, they have a Facebook page you can help out. I'll provide links to that. I'll provide links to the website where you can make a donation. I'm going to personally, this morning, I'm going to donate $100. Um, I, I feel called to do this, and uh, I think that it's something we can do. There's so much shit out there, folks, we can't do a damn thing about. I want you to hear me today. We can do something here. Every single person listening to me, you can do something. You just heard that. You know it's wrong. And you know you can't fix the ass clownery in Salem, Oregon. You know you can't. Only the people in Salem, Oregon can get together and fix this. So that stupidity like this doesn't happen. And I'm going to talk about fixing this at a local level for a bit before we bring our guest on. But what you can do is you can say that this lady is not going to think she's alone in this fight. 
And the fact that she's selling away everything she has. So she, understand what she's doing. She's doing this so she can die as comfortably as possible and leave as little a burden as possible on those she will leave behind. There is no hope for a cure for this woman. And these ass clowns and this turd in this neighborhood have told her that's unacceptable. Well, to me, that is definitely unacceptable, the turd in the city. And I think that if people want to call the city of Salem, Oregon and tell them you think they're a bunch of idiots, if a bunch of you did that today, that would be great. And maybe it would make them see how big the national attention on things like this is getting. And maybe it would be one more place that we can slam a brick up and put a wall that says, to here you shall come state and no further. I am sick and tired of city and state governments trampling on little people. And you know what I'm more sick of? I'm sick of your neighbors allowing it to happen. Where are the neighbors? Not the two or three that are making this known. Where are all the neighbors? Where are the five, six, seven blocks worth of neighbors? Why aren't you down at Town Hall right now saying something about this? Why aren't you not... I know that it's not impossible to find out who made this complaint. Why aren't you going to that person's door and going, Hey, turd! Hey, hey, don't you want to live here? And I don't mean being a mob, right? I don't mean being threatening. I mean, hey, you know what? This lady's lived next to you her whole life. Why do you have to do this? None of us care. Why doesn't the whole neighborhood go down to the town council and say, Hey, look... We don't care, right? It's one turd and the rest of the neighborhood. And we all vote, right? I, but we can't fix that. But what we can do as a community, a TSP community, we can each give her five bucks, ten bucks, fifteen bucks today. And we can fix this so even though the, the community needs to fix the stupid law and the stupid enforcement of the law, it doesn't affect her anymore. Why should it? You heard the pain in her voice. You can send a dying woman a message. And that message is somebody cares. Somebody that doesn't even know you, you just heard about what happened to you cares. I don't do this often. I don't say, hey, donate here often. I'm asking you to do it today. Before I bring our guest on, I have to do a little bit, a little mini civics lesson for the freaking status-minded moron idiots out there that are going, but rules are rules. Laws are the law. Change the law. It's not the enforcement arm's fault. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Let me explain something. Let me give you a little mini civics lesson. In our nation, we do not have militarized law enforcement. We do not have militarized code enforcement. Every single law enforcement officer, every single person serving in the capacity of elected official remains a, a private citizen of the United States that has the individual judgment to judge things based on things like the Constitution of the United States of America and the intent of an individual law. The the people asked to enforce the law could have went out to the turd's house and said, Mr. Turd, Mr. Turd, did you know, or Mrs. Turd, did you know your neighbor's dying of bone cancer and she's trying to make a little bit of money here to die comfortably. Did you know that, Mr. Turd? You didn't? Well, now do you want to withdraw your complaint now that you do know? Or, you know, you did know and you still did this anyway? Really? Let me show you something, Mr. Turd. And you get the great big giant code enforcement book and you lay it down right in front of them. This is the code enforcement that we are supposed to enforce for everybody, to be fair. You know what? This is what we know. Almost nobody here is standing completely in, you know, in a place where they're not in violation of at least something in this huge book, Mr. Turd, Mrs. Turd. Why, since I'm already here, why don't I start paging through this book and making sure that you're in compliance with every single city and town code? And when I get done with that, if I'm not too busy writing you citations, I'll go over there and see what I can do, Mr. Turd. Do you want me to do that? 
And if they say yes, you'd sit down on their front porch and you start going through line by line by line. Yes, that's selective enforcement of the law. Because law enforcement officers, every single one of you out there right now, uniformed or not, let me tell you something, your constitutional duty, right, your duty to the Constitution is to be a check on ridiculous laws and, the, and to make sure the law is being followed to its intent. You are the first check once a law is passed. It's up to you. And you guys do it every day. You pull someone over and go, you know what, you were late for work, you weren't that far over the speed limit, carry on. right? And there's times when a turd makes it impossible for you to look the other way, but depending on how high up in the branch you are, you can tell the turd to go to hell. So where's, where's, where's the department head, the supervisor that's looking into it? You don't look into it, moron. You know what you do? You issue her a freaking permit. You issue her a, 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 a specific, you just do it. Right? But nobody has any balls in the government anymore except when they're stepping on little people. The next thing is, you guys better understand this. When something like this happens, right? And this lady, they're not going to put, put in front of a jury, right? They're not, but like this other lady that would have the garden and they, they put somebody on trial for this. You know what? It's up to you as a juror to be a check on the law. Hey, the mayor of Salem? Hey, where the hell are you in this ass clown? Don't you know you could just sign a town charter order, an executive order, whatever the equivalency is in your city, and fix this? Don't you know you could call somebody up and say, hey, let it go or you're freaking fired? And I want to use the other F word. You know, there are all levels of places here where people are supposed to use their brains and be checks on the law. This is supposed to be a constitutional republic. The government is supposed to be there defending the rights of individuals, not oppressing them. And I find this to be completely ridiculous. This lady did not turn her front yard into a free market. She had her backyard set up to sell away the only things that she has left so she could die as comfortably as possible. And apparently no one in Salem, Oregon, inside their government there, has a freaking brain. Because if you did, this wouldn't be on national news, and you wouldn't be getting lamb-blasted by me to 25,000 people. 25,000 people, by the way, who are likely to call you and tell you you're a bunch of idiots. 25,000 people that are likely to go out and put you on Facebook pages and blow this thing up even bigger. 25,000 people that are making your city look like what it is. A bunch of status. 25,000 people that may be, even though they don't live where you are, will probably influence the next election because you guys are idiots. All right? So at least you elected officials, maybe you need to step up and maybe you need to do something immediately. Not look into it and see. Maybe you need to realize that this is not about this lady now. She's going to be okay. My community and other communities are going to step up and we're going to make sure she's okay. But you know what she said? I hope no one else has to go through this. Well, if anybody else ever has to go through this in Salem again, trust me, the wrath of Jack Spirico is only being demonstrated by about 1% right now. I will literally have your phone lines in the city of Salem, Oregon, melted if I ever hear of any shit like this coming out of Salem again. And folks, that's not what we're doing this time unless you just feel like it. This time, let's just help Jan. Let's send her a message. And I need to keep calm down now and I have a much happier subject. As I said during the introduction segment, we have a great guest. Fortunately, he didn't hear that before his interview because it probably would have blown him completely away and he would, would have been unable to give the great interview that he's about to give. Uh, but he's, he's a great guy and his name is Tom Spargo. Tom is a really cool guy, man. Um, his, you know, I guess you'd call it like, uh, his day job thing right now is he's actually an independent researcher and business development consultant to major Japanese companies and, he speaks Japanese, which is kind of a cool thing. 
Uh, he's actually lived in uh, Japan for four years. He's now in the Silicon Valley uh, in the clean technology industry as a consultant. Uh, and w with all that stuff, kind of, you know, several years ago, he realized that clean water wasn't getting any attention. And he started thinking about solutions to this, and he discovered rainwater harvesting and came up with his own take on a concept, and it addresses some of the shortcomings with, let's say you needed water and you didn't have a roof to work with, uh, that type of thing. And he created a company called RainSaucers.com, and he's here with us today to talk about that and general rain barrel harvesting and all things water. Hey, Tom, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I really appreciate you having me. Well, great. I mean, I know it's like a month ago you filled out the form and we finally got you on. And anybody else out there that's waiting, uh, it's just a backlog right now. But I really want to get you on because water to me is like one of the most important things that most people never think of. I mean, we've, we've grown up in a country where most of us from the time we were born until now, whenever we've wanted water, barring some natural disaster, turn a faucet and the water comes out. But it's really not like that all around the world, is it? No, it's not. Um, yeah, and actually, that's I'm just like you, just like everyone else. You know, I grew up, uh, you know, with the water being clean, safe. You know, just turn it on, and there it is. And uh, you know, I didn't give it much thought um, until I came out to Silicon Valley to California. And uh, you know, every summer we kept getting you know these drought alerts and fire you know danger warnings from the uh, you know the dry grass. And I started thinking more and more about water. And um, a couple years ago, I sort of uh, started thinking about you know the irony of it all, which is that especially in Northern California, you know, we would get so much water, some so much rain in the winter, and nothing at all in the summer. And I just thought, well, how come there's this big imbalance? Can't we capture more of that that winter rainwater and then use it in the summer? And then I found out about rain barrels and rainwater harvesting, and um, I was wondering. It, it seemed like such a great thing, this, this idea of rain barrels and, and rainwater collection. And I thought, why aren't more people doing that? And the conclusion I came to was that rain barrels and rainwater harvesting was just a little bit too complicated. Uh, it was more, to me, it seemed like more of like a Home Depot weekend warrior project than a product. And I thought, well, what if I could make something so simple, so low cost that, you know, anybody could just get right into it and start, start collecting rainwater anywhere in the world, anyone that needed it. And so, um, you know, I just sort of looked at a lot of different designs and, uh, came up with the concept of sort of a, you know, removing the roof from the equation because I thought, you know, the whole roof connection with the plumbing, you know, plumbing is what I think a lot of people don't have experience with and are a little scared of. So I thought, well, let's get rid of all that and let's just create a mechanism that you could hook right into a barrel, bucket, tank, whatever. And that's how the idea for rain saucers was born. Cool. And I want to get real deep into what they are and how they work, but I want to mention something I saw on your blog today because uh, I know I got people in in Colorado right now pulling their hair out listening to this show because unless they live off the water grid, uh, it's not even legal for them to have a rain barrel in in most of Colorado because they don't have the rights to the water that falls on the roof of their house. And I think Colorado needs to fix that, and Colorado residents need to fix that. But what I saw in your blog that was cool. And I seldom look to California and go, there's a good idea from a government. But I noticed that in California, instead of telling people not to have rain barrels, the government's actually encouraging it and even providing a subsidy for people to do it. That's right. Yeah, and it, yeah, California, a lot of cities. Um, it, this is motivated. This is uh, a very self-interested thing. It's not completely just to let residents save money. It's actually what what it is is they want to reduce stormwater because stormwater picks up all the um, – 
the chemicals from the street, and that winds up in the rivers and creeks and oceans. And I think it, and the EPA looks at how much uh, emissions there are, excuse me, how much contamination there is for each uh, city. So the idea was with the rain barrel is you can reduce the storm water runoff. And so, you know, they've got they've got a vested interest in in keeping stormwater out of the storm drains and using it locally. You know, and that's kind of always been my point to a lot of these western states that have these ridiculous laws like you don't own the rain that lands on your roof. Um, but we can't solve that problem today. So what I want to talk to people about uh, is, is your product, your rain saucer product. Can you? I mean, people can go to your site and look at it. We'll have a link right. in today's show notes. But give people kind of the best you can do with audio, visual description of what right. a rain saucer is and how it works. Right. So rain saucers is basically a giant funnel. Um, if you can imagine a four-foot diameter funnel that has a, um, a filter on the bottom, that will filter any uh, debris or um, uh, mosquitoes or things like that from getting into the, the bottom of the barrel, into the barrel. Uh, and then from there, it's got a standard two-inch adapter, you know, any the kind that you would see at any plumbing supply location. So what that does is it allows you to harvest rainwater onto a into this giant funnel, and then you could take that uh, with a standard two-inch connection and put it into just about anything. So, you know, you could... If you've got a, a barrel like those blue barrels that are ubiquitous, you see if they've got a standard two-inch in there, you could plug it right in there. Or um, if you've got sort of a larger tank and you can, uh, if you can imagine, you could put four on a on a rain barrel or two, or uh, it's a standard connection. So you, as, as long as you got PVC, two-inch PVC, you could make it any formation you want. Because the idea was we wanted to have something that was modular. That um, you know our our unit is four foot diameter. That's eleven, a little bit over eleven square feet. But uh, we wanted people, we wanted to allow people to be able to scale, you know, and multiplex and put you know different shapes and and and, and you know configurations. So uh, and the food, it's a food grade surface. So that's one of the key differentiators between what we do and the roof is that our surface is polypropylene, uh, UV resistant, so it'll last for years. And uh, like I said, with the food grade aspect of it is you don't have to worry about what might be on, uh, you know, what by, might be getting into the barrel. Uh, with roof-based rainwater harvesting, uh, there's these, this concern for contamination. Um, and I can get into that a little bit, but basically, you know, you got to, the thing with roofs is, you know, they're designed to kill um, plant life. You know, they're designed to resist moss with uh, zinc and uh, various variations of copper arsenate. And, uh, you know, this stuff is designed to essentially kill plants. So stuff from the roof is actually not ideal for stuff for your for your garden and whatnot. Not to mention, um, you know, if you're if this is going on edibles, uh, you wouldn't want to put roof rainwater on edibles because you just don't know what's in there. It could be the chemicals or it could be bird, you know, bird related stuff. Let's to put it uh, nicely. So with our system, uh, you know, the birds don't like it. They don't st- sit on it. It's not stable enough for them to sit on it. And um, uh, it's cleanable because it's at arm's levels, at, within arm's reach. So you can always make sure it's clean, and that keeps the water clean. So I guess that makes rainwater a lot safer for drinking then. Yeah, so rainwater, this is this is uh, the interesting thing. You, rainwater is uh, natural distilled water when it comes out of the sky, so uh, it is drinkable when it's, cr- you know, created by sort of by the heavens, right? The only time rainwater gets uh, contaminated is when it touches something else, such as a roof or or the street or something like that. 
if you collect it onto a food grade surface, it is um, it is drinkable. But you know, as with any sort of um, home-based source of water, you know, the user is responsible for their own water treatment. So you know, you would I would tell people in America that if they were going to use a rain saucer for drinking water, that it's still their responsibility to make sure that the water is is safe, is clean, you know, with, with water testing. But um, in theory, you know, like I said, natural distilled water right out of the sky, um, it should be, you know, it should be good to go. Um, so, yeah, it's, it is in theory drinkable. Um, and, uh, yeah. Very cool. I mean, one of the things I've always struggled with is, uh, like the house that we were talking offline before we got we got on the show here, and I was telling you about my place in Arkansas. And what I didn't tell you is, since I bought it already set up, I had no input over where the house is located uh, versus the slope of the land or what have you. And my house is basically on about the lowest portion of the land mm-hmm. of the land that is really usable for agricultural purposes. So I have this great big roof, and and there are some concerns with you know roof runoff and all, but you can do like a clean flush, and there's some ways you can do it and make that water relatively safe for watering plants. Um, but if I want to move that water to where my gardens are or to my orchard or anything like that where I'm planting this stuff, I have to use energy because I have to push that water up a hill. And we can get water to go downhill all day long for free, but we can only get it to go uphill with energy. But with your system, I could locate reservoirs anywhere I want. So if I have a, a particular area I want to irrigate, I only need something that's one inch higher up from there. In fact, if it was on the same level coming out the bottom of the barrel, I'm going to get atmospheric pressure. So I can move that water anywhere I want free of energy, mm-hmm. and that, that actually solves a problem that I've been kicking around in my head for quite a while. Right. Yeah, exactly, um, Jack. That's exactly right. I mean, there's three there's three virtues to, to rain saucers, uh, and I already talked about the cleanliness aspect. I already talked about the simplicity. The other aspect is the anywhere aspect. So, yeah, <clears throat> distributed water storage. Um, like you said, typically, you know, water in general is, you know, collected in a central location and then it has to be distributed from there with energy, and that could be pumping you know, uh, just sort of generating, you know, a diesel engine pumping or it could be, um, uh, solar pumping and things like that. But this all costs money. So one great thing about rain saucers is you can locate it anywhere you want and distribute it all around where you might need it and, um, free of charge. You know, there's no, there's no pumping required. So if you think you're going to need 50 gallons at a certain location, boom, you set up a rain saucers, uh, system maybe, you know, a month before you're going to need it. And it'll, that barrel will be full. Uh, hopefully it depends on where you live, of course. Um, and, uh, you could do this. And this is one of the, the great things about, uh, what our system can do for agriculture is that, um, you know, there's a potential for this to help small scale farmers to, uh, you know, at a very low cost take land which normally they couldn't grow on. But then they can, with, you know, with an on-site reservoir like this, they they can uh, you know, uh, start growing things that they couldn't. Or, for example, in developing countries, what we're looking at is trying to get small-scale farmers to upgrade from, say, a completely rain-dependent crop like corn to a, uh, a crop like tomatoes, which uh, you know can can live partially on rainwater and then the rest of the time can live on the reservoir, and. Um, this would allow small-scale farmers to make more money, right? Because tomatoes are, you know, get way much more mar- at the market than corn. Yeah, I can't see anybody really considering corn a cash crop anymore. Um, you know, of course, we're, we're growing millions of acres of corn now that's being turned into ethanol, which right. uh, to me is just it's just dumb on its face. 
because it's a net energy loss. And, and if you're going to be a small-scale grower, then you need to be growing you know, what you'd call a money crop. Right. And a lot of these money crops, they do need irrigation, but as you say, they can be supported. When I'm looking at what you're doing, my mind always connects things together. And we have a listener out there named Larry Hall who put together a what he calls a bucket garden. I don't know if you've seen his videos at all. Okay. No, I haven't. Here's the, for the people that have it out there as well, here's the basic outline of what he does. He takes a rain gutter, about a 10-foot section, and he takes the caps for the rain gutter, and he, he epoxies them on, sets that down on the ground and builds a platform. Takes a 5-gallon bucket, drills a 2 and 7 eighths inch hole, and into that hole puts a 3-inch uh, basket like you'd use for an aquaponic system in the bottom. Fills mm-hmm. that with dirt, mm-hmm. okay, and sets that, that into the rain gutter on the platform. And mm-hmm. does that with, you know, about, it takes about 10 to go across a 10-foot section. Mm-hmm. Rain gutter's then hooked up to a rain barrel, and there's a mm-hmm. float valve in the rain gutter. Mm-hmm. And when the rain gutter volume goes down to a certain level, the float valve opens, and you have a self-watering garden. I see. Now, his thing is to be able, if you build it close to a structure, you can harvest rainwater, but then you do have to worry about clean flush valves, and you do have to worry about some of the contamination you mentioned, and you're also geographically limited. Right. That system with your system together can go absolutely anywhere, including right. we have. I mean, think about our demographic here, uh, Tom. We have a lot of people that are very self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. survivalist-minded. Many of them own small tracts of land that are kind of like for a bug-out location. They right. may not even have much of a structure on them. They're just a place they can go for family camping or if they really need to, maybe they pull up an RV. You could have a system like this out there working when you're gone. Right, exactly. It's passive. You know, that's the great thing about it is that you just set it up. Uh, you know, ideally, you you know, um, the system that we've created has good wind resistance, but it, you know, there are limitations. I mean, if it it's designed to, you know, in the event of say a major, you know, um, hurricane or something like that, it's designed to fail on purpose because we don't want it to be damaged. So, um, you know, but barring like you know gale force winds, it should be fine in most locations, and uh, it will passively fill that barrel while you're away. So when you do need it, it is there for you. You know, we've had a lot of inquiries. You know, speaking about your potential listeners, a lot of people have asked us about this for livestock um, and you know watering things, whether they be animals or other crops or things like that that are completely away from anything else. Um, so we've gotten some inquiries from goat uh, farmers and you know people that work with uh, grazing animals because uh, it allows them to range further. You know, because they've got an on-site, they could potentially set up a trough. Anywhere on the property that could be very far from other places. You know, again, it's the distributed storage means you don't have to pump it. You just have it on site. Yeah, I mean, thinking about that, you could take any one of these prefab stock tanks, like you can get a place like Tracker Supplier, what have you, uh, as big as you wanted and plumb uh, standard PVC to it. And, and your system is literally unlimited. You, you're limited only by your space and how much pipe you have. You could... You could have 20 of them surrounding something like this, and if you did something to mitigate evaporation like shade, it could, I mean, that actually could be really useful to a lot of these uh, ranchers right now in, in areas in Texas and Arkansas that are having real, real problems with this drought. We're having one of the worst droughts ever uh, in this area. Uh, the right. biggest commodity I see on Highway 30 going from Arkansas to Texas now is hay, and, and now they have on the news that because of that we have a hay shortage, and uh, it all goes back to water. Yeah, and you know, going back to my, how I started this whole thing is, you got to remember, you know, California, where I live, uh, 
you know, we go through a drought. It's funny because, you know, our drought actually lasts months. We every year is a drought for us. We we get no water from essentially from June to about, uh, you know, September or October. So our drought is about five months every year. And that's, you know, out here, it's tremendously useful because you can really bridge you know, if you create a large enough uh, reservoir, you can bridge these, you know, these two periods. In a place like Texas, it may not be, it may be a month, or I, I'm not exactly sure how long, but. We're, um, we'll do, on uh, a bad year like this, we'll go three or four months sometimes with no appreciable rainfall. But a lot of times what will happen is you'll get some rain, uh, <laughs> here, there, and everywhere. And everybody will get some, but all at different times. And they might get an inch, but if you only get an inch in two months, you might as well have got nothing. Right. Unless you catch it. Unless you catch it, exactly. So, you know, if you got you plan ahead, you know, if you figure you're going to get an inch over those, over that time period, just set up the amount, you, you scale out, you figure out exactly how much collection surplus area you need, and, uh, you, you know, you got the, we can make, the, you know, obviously the catchment part of it, but then the, the barrels is the key. You gotta have a, a, a good source of, of barrels, a uh, low cost, you know. And the great thing actually about barrels these days is they are, uh, you know, you can get these now recycled, you know, your fifth standard 55 gallon drum. I think is a, the market price on that is like 20, 20 bucks now. Um, you know, re- recycled from say a Coca Cola or a Pepsi plant. Yeah, absolutely. So, and of course then it's food grade. And one of the other things that people are picking up for like 50 bucks on, on Craigslist, the IBC totes, the big yeah. white ones. Yeah, I mean, I think those things are, how, how, how big are those? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it's like 270 gallons. Or that's a lot. Like that, or 200. I, I'm not sure, but it's quite a lot. Yeah. The, the, the one thing though I should mention about those totes is, and some people don't realize, something people don't realize with respect to white, uh, barrels and white totes is they do generate algae. So you will get algae in there. Um, you know, so if it's for plants or things like that, it's probably okay. But, you know, if it's for any purpose that uh, is sensitive, say, you know, edible things, you might not want to do white. You want to might want to go with something more opaque, like the blue, the dark blue barrels. Or a um, uh, or an IBC tote and then a $10 gallon of paint. <laughs> or pay, if you can get on the they, – they're usually inside those those metal nets. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But, um but yeah, that's uh, those definitely are great and they're cheap. Because if you if you go look at the like the the tanks that are about two hundred fifty gallon tanks that tried your supply, um, th- they'll run you about three hundred bucks. So you can hold the same amount of water with one of these, and I think you can figure out a way to keep the light out of there for less than the uh, spread of two hundred dollars. Exactly. Yeah, you could. You could, exactly. So it's not ex- it's not expensive, you know, and then you know if you want to go smaller too, you can go smaller too. In Guatemala, as I was referring to earlier, we we've just finished our field try in Guatemala. We you know we sp- targeted specifically down there on drinking water, and uh, we put rain saucers on five gallon buckets. So you know the idea being. That, uh, that they fill up right away, you know, as soon as you get like about a half an inch to an inch of rain, you've got a, a full bucket of drinkable rainwater, and then you can swap out a new bucket. And, you know, buckets are cheap, too, if, if you want to go small scale just for drinking purposes. My point is that, you know, um, it depends on what you want to use the rainwater for. If it's for your own personal consumption, a bucket, a bucket is fine. If it's for something more heavy duty, then those barrels are great or the totes or, you know, or a tank if you can afford it. Sure. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys are doing down there in Guatemala? Because, I mean, you guys are addressing a real local need down there, and they've got some real problems. Yeah, so... Uh, tell us how, you, how you're doing that. Sure. So the thing with Guatemala that's interesting is, so, uh, you know, Rain Saucers is about solving, you know, water problems 
of all kinds, um, including clean drinking water. And as everybody knows who's ever been to Mexico or any of these Latin American countries, you know, you don't drink the water. And, you know, surprisingly, locals don't drink the water either. Um, you know, you'd think they'd have resistance, but they don't. And they're afraid to drink the water. So the result of that is um, a booming bottled water industry all over Latin America. In fact, um, neighboring Mexico is per capita the largest consumer of bottled water in the world. Now, this is a problem because, uh, you know, in a poor country like that, um, you know, bottled water represents a huge percentage of their income. So, you know, there's, there's some people are paying, you know, five, ten percent of their annual income just on bottled water. So we thought, you know, well, this is a natural fit for a company like us, you know, who has a solution to drinking water, um, with this, you know, with free rainwater. So what we did was we went down there. I, I hired a, a summer contractor, sent them down there with some units and we implemented them with some families down there and, Tried to see if we could get them to essentially, you know, um, substitute out, swap out their purchase of bottled water for uh, rainwater and see if we could, you know, get them to be equivalent. Because when we did that, then we'd obviously have a, a return on investment for them. They could see savings for every bucket, a five-gallon bucket of rainwater they harvested. They didn't have to buy a five-gallon jug. And each five-gallon jug, jug of uh, water in Guatemala is two bucks. So... So that was the, the trial that we did down there, and to our to our delight and, and uh, amazement, you know, first of all, almost everyone was willing to drink it. We had, you know, there's only one out of the nine families that were still afraid of, of rainwater, and they were spooked mostly by pollution. You know, they were just concerned that um, there was just too much pollution in the air. But the, all the other families just got it right away. They they really understood that, you know, if you keep assist, if you keep it clean. And you flush out, you know, like you were talking about the flush part of it. I mean, as long as you don't, um, you know, you let that that first bit that settles on the bottom, you don't drink that part. Um, it's very high quality. Um, and I, by the way, about pollution, I should say that you know, pollution is everywhere, all around us. You know, we 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 breathe it anyway. So um, it's the kind of thing where you just have to understand how to how to. When you harvest the rainwater, what you, how you use it and how you, how you work with it. So, and the other families, the other, uh, eight out of the nine families were not only drinking it, but, uh, five out of those eight were willing to, to purchase one. They, they had said it was a great idea and, um, they said that they were willing to buy one if it was available in the marketplace for them. You know, that was the ultimate goal is to, to see, okay, you know, we know it's a substitute for bottled water, but is it something that poor families would be willing to pay for? And the answer that we got was yes. Now we're trying to see if we can find distributors down there, um, and not just in Guatemala, but other countries that are willing to uh, to work with us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, because it obviously has a very short-term payback solution uh, time when you're when you're paying two dollars a gallon uh, for water. And I mean, the, the other side of that to me is um, I think that people need to kind of sit in this country and understand that two dollars in Guatemala is a hell of a lot more than two dollars in the United States. Right. Exactly. Ironically, you know, that's it's about that's two dollars for the five gallons is the same that you pay it pay it you know here in America too. We we still pay two dollars too if you go to like the you know the Safeway or wherever you shop and when you bring your your five gallon jug in, two dollars is about what you'll pay. That's the that's the going rate. But uh, but in America, of course, that represents a much smaller income portion of our portion of our income. But but yeah, it's um, it's just crazy. I mean, you know, if if the municipal water companies just did their job, you know, and, clean, and kept the water clean, 
the economy would be much better off. But, uh, well, you know, I mean, with these, with these countries, I mean, just a lot of stuff goes wrong in between municipal services and when it gets to the customer. What about the skeptics out there right now that are saying, well, here's the problem. Um, it doesn't rain all the time. So we're going to have dry seasons and wet seasons. And right. can I really harvest enough water in the dry to get by until the wet? Right. So this is the number one issue facing rainwater harvesting, not just our system, but all systems. Um, you know, people think, well, rainwater is only at certain times of the year. What good is it if it's not a year-round solution? Well, my answer to that is uh, there is no such thing as a, you know, answer to all of our problems. I mean, if there was such a thing, then there would be all, you know, peace on earth and everything would be wonderful. It's, that just does not the way it works. So the way I see it is that, you know, if you're, rain, if you're living in an area where your rainy season is, say, six months out of the year, well, God bless you. I mean, that's great. You know, you've got six months there where you can essentially be off grid if you'd like to. And, uh, you know, I, I just look at it the other way around. You know, you've got this opportunity. It's just something that you shouldn't wait. That's free money. So, um, so you know, yes, it, rain water harvesting is a seasonal thing. Uh, there are ways to make it last the whole year. So, for example, you buy a massive tank, like a several thousand gallon tank, and uh, you can make that the harvested portion last you throughout the year. But that is expensive. The real, I think the real return on investment is where you just use a small, um, storage medium, such as a bucket or a tank or whatever, and a small catchment area, which is a, you know, commiserate with that, and you, you know, you use it when it's there. When it's not, that, that's, you know, that's where the city is going to have to come in or some other source, unfortunately. But, but like I said, it's free money and you will reduce your water bill. You will, uh, in the case of the people that are living off of, you know, can live off of rainwater, they're, they're staying healthier and so forth. And in the case of, you know, the other thing to remember too is that farming is seasonal. There's lots of things that are seasonal and yet we do them. So that's my answer. Yeah. And I would also add to that, the more efficient you use the water that you have, the more you get out of it anyway. Like when I was talking about Larry's bucket garden, um, it doesn't really use that much water because the water does not it, it get heavily evaporated. Uh, because it, everything's covered up. And right. the more you do of that and, and, and using techniques like we talk about on the show, things like key line plowing and swelling mm -hmm. and, and culture, uh, all of these things reduce the overall water need. So if we can get a lot of it for nothing and then, and then get by, go a long way per gallon, like, I guess I look at it this way. We always say we want our car manufacturers to make our cars get more miles to the gallon. Uh, maybe as growers, we should start thinking more and more about how we can get uh, more bushels per gallon of water as well. There's a lot of efficiency room for improvement uh, in a lot of things that are going on out there. If you plow a field square and straight and plant it with one crop that's very hungry and thirsty like corn, you right. need a lot of water. If right. you use contours and you use mulch and, and you use shade and you use uh, things to block wind to reduce wind evaporation, and then you bring in something like this, you get a lot more mileage, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a. You know, I'm not a farmer myself, of course. But um, in my own backyard garden, I could see a huge difference. I converted. You know, I had I had sprinkle sprinklers basically from my garden. I converted to drip. And immediately I could see the result in that. Um, it's just some of these things are just common sense. You know, you you uh, like you said, cut down the evaporation and you you monitor and you could 
you could definitely take the rain, harvested rainwater and really make that last. In fact, that's another experiment. I haven't yet posted it on my blog, but I will then, will soon is I've, I've got a tomato, a couple of tomatoes in the back that I'm growing where I am using nothing but rainwater. And the reason why this is significant is that, like I said, it doesn't rain at all here in July and August, but I'm using harvested rainwater to kind of prove that concept of, of that I spoke about earlier, which is, with rainwater, you can essentially smooth out that distribution and make it through any drought. You know, and you mentioned drip irrigation, and I, I believe the, the way you take something like what you've built and, and make more of it is to piece it together with other things. And, you know, there's really simple timers out there that will open and close a valve, and they use very little energy, and you could run them on a 6 or a 12-volt battery, and that battery could have an infinite lifespan with a little bitty $15 solar panel. So right. you could set up one of your systems, set up a series of beds somewhere, uh, run use pressure to create your drip irrigation or soaker hosing, set that little solenoid to open up at 5 o'clock from 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock every day or based on what your flow rate is, what your reservoir can handle, mm-hmm. and pretty much go out there, pull weeds, and pick stuff. Exactly. Um, yeah, and actually there's there's two com- two other companies that I've heard about that – uh, on that front, um, that I should might be interesting to your listeners. I mean, one is uh, this company called DripTech, which um, they're sp- sp- exclusively focused on the developing world, but they're doing uh, low cost drip with low gravity. So, in other words, you don't have to get the barrel up all that high to still create enough pressure. They've created the um, the way that they poke the holes in the drip line. It are so precise and uh, so so uh, exact that with very low pressure you're able to get really good um, distribution of the water all the way out you know tens of feet you know way way out to the end of the row there because I've talked to a lot of um, small plot farmers and they say that's one of the issues with drip is that you know your first ten feet are okay but after that you might have problems so drip tech is one interesting company on that front and then there's another another company I heard about called Catch a Drip. Which I think they, what they do is they have, uh, they started out working on the, um, the condensation that comes from AC systems. So you'd hook that up to your, your AC runoff and that would drip, um, you know, that would drip uh, plants in the vicinity of the condensation. But I think they have a rain barrel connector too. So that's another, that's a really low cost way to do it. Although that's not timed or anything. So. What's so the other? What was the second one you mentioned? Uh, it's called Catch a Drip. I believe catch it's just drip. Catch okay. a Drip dot com. Yeah, that's a one another way to just like passively, you know, the harvest the rainwater and then let it sort of drip out to where you want it to go. But, but um, it's good to see that there are companies sort of solving these problems and making it even cheaper. You know, so if you don't, if you want to go um, real low cost, there are you know, especially in developing countries where they won't be able to afford a lot of these technologies. There are people working on that. Awesome. And you guys are actually working with another product that I think is pretty cool, the uh, Rainwater Hog. Yes. Yeah, they're good friends of ours. Um, yeah, interestingly, they're, they're another Aussie, um, you know, rain barrel company because, uh, Australia had a serious bout of drought, uh, I guess, what was it, maybe a decade ago. And after that, all these, uh, rainwater tank companies came out of there. And one of them is, is Rainwater Hog. And, um, yeah, they're great because they've got that slim, that slim approach, so uh, your rain barrel doesn't look like a rain barrel, and it can go right up against the side of your house or, or fence line or any place. And so, yeah, we've figured out how we can be compatible. We've got, you know, we figured out what the adapters are. We rain saucers can plug into just about anything, including the rainwater hog. 
And you were saying a little bit about how they're designed to fail because when I looked at them, they, you know, they're they're kind of a lightweight, easy to install thing. And my first thought was, what happens if that gets hit with a heavy wind? And you said basically the worst thing that could happen is you have to go back there and set it back up. Right. Yeah. I mean, we 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 deliberated and anguished over how perfect to make the product. Um, you know, I mean, we get really strong winds here in California, but also obviously in other parts of the country, you get all kinds of crazy winds. And so we knew that, uh, you know, there's no way that we'd have to create some sort of limit. Okay. So what we decided to do was focused on, you know, keeping the product low cost, you know, get the UV resistance in there, get the ease of use in there, um, and make it so that it would not get hurt, you know, if, if, if something happened, you know, we didn't want it to be able to stand up to, to the, uh, you know, to a hurricane. What we wanted it to do is basically to pop off in the event of a hurricane undamaged. That was the approach we decided to, to take. So, um, so yes, it has good with resistance, you know, on, if you uh, can give it some shelter, that, that would be ideal. If not, what will have, the worst thing that will happen is it will just pop off and you have to, you know, reset it, which basically means you have to, um, Put it back on. You know, it's just a few minutes. I mean, the install itself is only a few minutes. So, like I said, that's the worst thing that will happen. Yeah, uh, I watched we, your installation video, and my first thought was, well, even I can do that. Yeah, yeah, I know. No tools required. Uh, and anybody can do it. All you just need is a barrel and hopefully with a two-inch uh, hole already in it. And then you just, uh, you know, a few minutes later, pop in the fasteners, put in the filter, uh, put the, uh, the retention ring in there, plug it in, and you're good to go. So what does this thing cost? You keep mentioning it's low cost. If I wanted to go out and buy a couple of them today, how would I do that and what would I pay for them? Well, so the the retail price, suggested retail price is $55 uh, per rain saucer. And online we sell through uh, Aquabarrel and also through a, um, a company in Florida called Aquaponic Links because uh, we're big with a lot of aquaponics people have been using our stuff because uh, fish – they uh they are they're real sensitive to to contaminants so you know it's it's an ideal solution for them those are online and then it, depending on what city you live we also have distribution in a couple of with a couple of uh, rain barrel retailers in uh, in different locations in the US those are all on our site but $55 if you're going to buy more than 5 we'll sell you wholesale that's our uh, you know we do some wholesale sales as well to uh, institutions and or, or you know large scale implementations. Very very cool. And uh, folks want to learn more about this. Your website is rainsaucers.com. And you've got a YouTube channel there as well. You're on you're on Facebook, Twitter, that type of thing. Yep, uh, it's all on the homepage of rainsaucers.com. You can connect with us uh, any of those means. We're you know we're continually doing experiments and you know trying to explore the, the the things that we talked about the virtues of the cleanliness and the distribution distributed storage. So we're always posting videos and all kinds of interesting tidbits on how to use it. So um, yeah, we encourage people to sign up at our our uh, Facebook or or email or whatever. Well, I'll tell you what, man, it's been a great interview, and I think it probably gives people a ton of ideas. I know you gave just interviewing you. I started getting idea after idea after idea of how these things could be implemented. And uh, I think there, there's going to be a lot of excitement in the audience. The other thing I want to tell people is at your site, you have a blog, and I'll make sure I put links to all of this stuff in today's show notes, but your blog is, is great, all kinds of good stuff on there. Uh, like you were mentioning, stuff about drought-resistant tomato gardens and the work you did in Guatemala using air conditioning water. I mean, really cool stuff you're doing there. 
And I think what you're doing really will make a difference and empower people. So, hey, man, thanks for, for working hard to come up with this product, and we look forward to seeing what you're going to come up with next. Yes, and I should also mention, this for this audience, it's made in USA. We make it locally, so, you know, so it's a local product. That's all I want to say. <laughs> well, that matters. Trust me. I've, <laughs> I've gotten ear pills about some stuff um, on that very note, so... Um, yeah, and I know you said you're looking at maybe coming out with some more stuff in the future. So if yep. anything comes up, if you've got news, if you've got a new product, anything yep. you ever want to talk about, you just get a hold of us and we will bring Absolutely. you back on the air, man. I guarantee you. I mean, I, you know, talk about ideas. I've got lots of other ideas, which are, you just, well, I, I don't want to, you know, put the cart before the horse, but I will keep in touch with you, Jack. I've got lots of other products coming down the pike that I think your listeners would appreciate. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, folks, you've heard from him today, Tom Spargo, founder of Rainsaucers.com. Check out his website and uh, think about all the things that you can do if you're able to actually harvest water somewhere other than right out of the gutter on your roof, if you can make that portable. And I think maybe you'll start to get a lot of creative ideas with your homesteading and your, your, your remote locations and things like that. And with that, this has been Jack Spear Gautier, along with Tom Spargo, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd Nobody up there cares, they're living